Welcome to the Faith Church Podcast, where every week we post sermons from our lead pastor, Rick Shule, and guest preachers, as well as other content from church members and staff. We hope you hear something that resonates with your soul this week. Thank you, Abby, and thank you, kids. Thank you, Ted, for reading scripture. I, I mean, it was kind of strange that somebody had to clear their throat right when you read that scripture. It was amazing. Very strange. Well, we are going to talk about that scripture in particular today. We are going to talk about the ways that the church historically and still today in many places leave women out of roles of leadership or preaching based on two verses in the whole Bible. And we'll take a look at that in just a little bit. But before we get to that, let's just talk about the Bible in general. The church and Bible publishers have done a lot of things. They've added a lot of things to the Bible to help make it readable, to help us in our Bible reading. And I'm not against all of it, right? Some of the things they've added have been pretty useful. All those little numbers in front of every sentence and every page, the chapters and verses, those weren't in the original document. Those were added thousands of years, maybe 1,500 years later to help us read the scriptures. Sometimes that's been done haphazardly, unfortunately, and they put in chapter breaks where I don't think a chapter break should be, but we should be aware of that. So Bible churches and Bible publishers have tried to help. Um, some Bibles have all the letters or all the words of Jesus in red in their Bible, right? That wasn't in the original, but they're there to try to help us out. I had a Bible not long ago called uh, the Green Bible, and the publishers there, they took every Bible verse that they felt was environmentally friendly, and they marked it in green. There you go. I mean, again, I'm not against it, but that's not exactly the Word of God. They're putting their touches on it. When I was growing up, I received, I actually have my, my, uh, my Bible that I had when I was a child, uh, when I was a teenager here. Oops. Somebody gave it to me, um, somebody in my church, a guy named Dan. He wrote a little note here, uh, Dan Otis. Uh, he was a leader, and he helped in our youth group, and he gave this Bible to me And uh, when I was in about seventh grade. And, man, I love this Bible. I don't have a lot of things from my childhood still, so I'm kind of amazed that it endured. But I devoured this thing as a teenager. Man, I abused it and used it up. There goes Genesis and Exodus right there. And... Uh, I love it. So I read this, you know, I, you know, passionately as a teenager. Um, but then I, later on, I kind of learned what this Bible actually is. Um, on the cover, it says it's a true love waits Bible. And every 20 pages or so, you have like a very colorful uh, page all about how teenagers should date or not date, whatever the case may be. And you would think, like all these things that they added, you would think that the entire Bible was just concerned about the dating lives of teenagers. Um, oh, here's a good one. This is a page um, on what to do when somebody tries to kiss you. Should we read it? Let's read it. <laughs> all right. Uh, what you can do if somebody uh, tries to kiss you, you can say that my lips are really sunburned. Um, you can say, I just had my braces tightened. Uh, you can say, I'm known to carry infections. <laughs> you can say, have you ever burped and then began to taste the dinner you just ate? This, I think this is good for people of all ages, right? This is, guys, this is in my Bible. What is going on, right? 
people have added to the Bible so that they can kind of push forward an agenda or a thought or a belief. It's wild. Last week I talked about the Schofield Reference Bible. Cyrus Ingerson Schofield wrote the first Bible study Bible with annotated notes in the margins. And he was an end times fanatic. And so he wrote into the margins the whole end times story. And people took it for gospel. I think most people add to the Bible in good faith. I think most people try to make it more readable, try to help people, but we have to be aware and maybe even wary of the things that people highlight and lift up out of the scripture. And if any time somebody takes one verse and makes it the backbone for all their belief and all their practice, ooh, that actually says more about that person than it says about the Bible. That's right. Amen. Now, the Bible is not one book with one voice. The Bible is a collection of literature, letters, prophecies. Prophecies, by the way, are not fortune-telling. The prophecies in the Bible are truth-telling. Most of the prophecies in the Bible are if-then statements. If you play with fire, you will get burned. Those kinds of things. So when we think about prophecy, I don't want us to think about like mystical fortune-telling, but think about truth-telling. That's a little bit more honest to what the Bible says about prophecy. It's poetry, it's songs, it's histories, it's allegories, it's stories, all of it with a wide variety of voices and perspectives, but in the hands of God is useful to guide us in our faith and practice but it doesn't have just one voice. And in many places, the Bible talks with one another, where the Proverbs say, God is fair to the righteous, the righteous will prosper, and the wicked will cease to exist. In the next book over, it says, God, why is it that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are failing? The scripture wrestles with itself, and it talks with itself. And Ancient Israel and the early church held it all together and said all these voices together God uses to inspire and lift us up. And so we can't just take one verse and say this is what the whole Bible says on the matter. It most certainly does not. Well then, pastor, what are we going to do? How do we, how do we take this massive book with all of its different voices, different perspectives, and create some sort of cohesive belief system. Well, some people have tried to say that there is a canon within the canon. What does that mean? It means that some Christians think that there are some Bible verses that are more important than other Bible verses. And so you take one major Bible verse, and you lift that up, and you interpret the rest of the book based on that one Bible verse. It's not a bad approach, and I think people have applied it faithfully. I like it depending on which Bible verse they choose, right? If they choose 1 John 4, 7 that says God is love, hey, I'm on board. Let's interpret the whole scripture through the lens that God is love. But if they interpret the whole Bible through 1 Timothy 2, 8, (gasps) not so much, right? So there's this problem with this idea of a canon within the canon. Which Bible verse are you going to choose? Which Bible verse 
is normative for the whole Bible. I actually think that approach is backwards. And what we need to do is flip it around. This is what the church has called the rule of faith. It is where we interpret any particular scripture in light of the whole of scripture. That's the rule of faith. Pastor, are you saying that if I'm going to properly understand the whole, any particular scripture, I need to know the whole stinking book? Yeah. Podcast listeners, I'm cringing and nodding. Yeah, absolutely. But that's a huge undertaking. I know. But who can do this? I, I know it's difficult. But that's the task in front of us. And so if we are going to comment or understand any particular piece of Scripture, for every, un, every ounce of zeal that we bring, we have to bring a pound of humility. Every ounce of zeal we bring, we have to bring a pound of humility to the Scriptures to say, this is what I think it means. God help us. God guide us. What else in the Scriptures address this specific topic? We have to especially be humble when we find a piece of Scripture that if we make the backbone of our faith and our practice, we, we have to be aware of who it could possibly harm and the groups of people that it may harm. We have to be careful with Scripture. We have to honor it. We have to get the whole scope of Scripture together. It is a big process, but guess, but don't worry, you're not alone. This is why we have the community of faith. This is why we can talk with each other about Scripture. We can grow, we can learn more and more about Scripture so we can better apply any particular piece of Scripture. Our topic today is women in leadership. And before we go into Second or First Timothy, which we definitely will, we have to get, take a step back. What is the broad scope of women's role in the Scripture? What does the Scripture say about women from beginning to end? And if we do it honestly with an openness to God, we may be very well surprised. See, the book starts out with this incredible affirmation of women. It starts out with the creation of human beings, and there it says, God created them in God's own image, Male and female, they were created in God's image. Why would the ancient Israelites feel the need to say men and women? What problem in their society were they addressing by claiming at the very beginning of their book that men and women are made in the image of God? Could it be that in their ancient cultures and in their context that people believed that only men were made in the image of God and that women were made to be subservient to men? Could that be the cultural context that they write this word saying, no, all men and women were made in the image of God? We continue the story in Exodus, the very beginning of the people of Israel as a people. And we hear the story in Exodus that Pharaoh is going to try to take care of the population of Israel by killing the boys. And so, what happens? The spotlight turns to the Israelite women, two midwives who thwart Pharaoh's plan by delivering babies quickly and saying, sorry, Pharaoh, our women are just stronger than your women, I guess. And then the story goes to more women, 
Moses' mother and Moses' sister who protects and cares for Moses and watches him go down the river and goes to Pharaoh's own daughter who thwarts Pharaoh's plans and says, this is my child, I'm going to protect him. The story of the people of Israel begin with women standing up against tyrannical power. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament, we have, uh, we have women in places where you would traditionally think men belong, as priestesses, as prophets, as queens, as leaders throughout the people. We jump to the New Testament, and we have Jesus lifting up and caring for women. We have Mary, the sister of Martha, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, who takes her seat with the apostles. And when her sister Martha uh, protests, Jesus says, nope, Mary has chosen her seat. She's chosen the right part, and it will not be taken from her. We have in the stories that it's women who go to the tomb on that resurrection morning to care for Jesus' body, to continue the movement forward, and it's to the women that it is announced that he is risen and he is not, not here. And it's the women that go back and report to the rest of the disciples. It's the women that prophesy, tell the truth, preach to the church that Christ is risen. At Easter time, we do this, uh, we do this call and response, Christ is risen, risen indeed, right? I think it should be Christ is risen, risen indeed, and thank the women for telling us, right? We wouldn't be able to do it without women. Paul writes in his, in his letters that the early church, men and women are equal. We're all one in Christ. In his letters, he thanks and names specific women who are church leaders, who are sponsors, who took care of the church, who are preachers. He names Junia, who is among the apostles. I think sometimes we think that the apostles means just those 12 guys. Paul doesn't think so, and the early church didn't mean that. Apostle meant the sent one. All right? It literally means someone who is sent. Apostles are church leaders. And he names himself as apostle, and he names Junia as an apostle, a church leader who was in Christ even before he was. The Bible from beginning to end affirms women's roles. And at the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, and they felt this overwhelming spirit move in them and empower them to become the people of God, Peter explained what was going on by saying, this is what the prophet of old said, that in these days, God will pour out my spirit on all people. My sons and my daughters will prophesy. Young and old will dream dreams. My servants, men and women, will preach, will prophesy, will lead. That's the scope of Scripture. There's more. I could keep going, but we, I mean, how long do you guys want this service to go? That's the scope. And so, when we come to a Scripture that is an outlier of all of that, of that entire thread, of that movement, when we come to a Scripture that's an outlier, like First Timothy is, that, that Ted wrote, read, we have to say, what's going on here? We have to pause and we have to scratch our heads because this doesn't quite fit what's going on with the rest of it. God forbid we take this outlier and prop it up and build a whole way of organizing church around it. So when we have this outlier sentence, 
we have to pull it out. We have to pause and think, how does this fit into the overall structure of Scripture? How do we do that? There's a couple of things that we do, and, and this is what I think can be helpful. Anytime we read a piece of Scripture, we can put it in one of two buckets, okay? We can put it in a bucket that says, this is universally true. This is true in all places, all times. This was meant for everybody, everywhere. 1 John 4, 7, God is love. I think that that's a universal truth. I think it's true anytime, anywhere you go. And then there are other scriptures that are contextual instructions. They are instructions for specific people in specific times for specific reasons. And the church has to negotiate which is which. Now, before you think, Pastor, now you're picking and choosing. Now you're not honoring the Bible. Christians have been doing this from the very beginning. The early church, when they started letting Gentiles, non-Jewish folks, into the church, they had to negotiate what the scriptures meant for all those new converts. All the Greek people that were coming to the church, they're like, hey, sign me up for this Jesus movement. I am on board. And then all the Jewish Jesus followers said, great, come on in, step right up and get circumcised. And they're like, wait a sec, well, yeah, let's hold on just a second. Do we have to? And they're like, it's in the Bible. It's in our book. And they're like, well, let's negotiate. What is a universal truth? What is a contextual instruction? And there we, we see it reported in Acts chapter 15. The early church leaders said, you know what? Circumcision is going to go in the contextual instruction bucket. But here's some things that we think are universal. We think eating meat sacrificed to idols? Absolutely no. We think sexual immorality? Absolutely no. These are the two things that we're saying are universal. And the church said, great, we're on board. Then a couple years later, they're like, hey, what about that meat eating, uh, <laughs> eating meat sacrificed to idols? Maybe that's not a universal truth. Can we revisit that? And the early church renegotiates that. And Paul says, you know what? There are times and places where it's fine. It doesn't matter. It'll be okay. Use your wisdom. Use your judgment. But above all, be guided by love. Is how I eat harming my neighbor? Is what eating this meat sacrifice to idols, is it causing a problem for somebody else? If so, then I should give it up. Paul then says, this is the guidance that we should live by. And we get 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love, right? Love is what we should live by. Love goes in universal truth. So now we have these, these two buckets, universal truth, contextual instructions. Before we get to 1 Timothy, I know that you're just eager to talk about 1 Timothy. I want to talk about 1 Corinthians. Uh, in chapter 11, there's a problem going on with women, and we, there's, this, there's an instruction that he gives. In Corinth, apparently, hold on to, hold on to yourself. This is going to blow your socks off. The women in Corinth, get this, were preaching without hats on. Woo! My, my, my. What? So in Corinth, the women were leading, they were talking, they were preaching, and they were taking off their head coverings. And this is scandalous enough that Paul has to write about it. Again, it's a different world. It's a different context. So the early church was already 
egalitarian. All equality among people, especially men and women, was a feature of the early church. They were already bucking social norms by having women leaders, by having women present in the church at all. And so the women in Corinth were going one extra step and saying, I don't need to wear this head covering either. And it was causing quite a kerfuffle in the church. I don't know why, I wasn't there, but Paul then gives this instruction for them. Hey, women, when you prophesy, let's not buck the system so much that we make the, the worship service about ourselves. So, when you preach and prophesy, will you please wear a head covering? Paul didn't say please, but you get the gist, right? Contextual instruction. That was for the people in Corinth at the time. Now, funny enough, Christians in other places and times have also taken that to be universal truth. And I have friends uh, on the older side of things who remember that they had to wear a bonnet when they went to church. Anybody remember anything like that? Anybody got, some of y'all got some of that? That was from this. I'm thankful that we don't do that anymore. That's contextual instructions, right? Now let's come to 1 Timothy. What's happening in this letter to Timothy? Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, who is starting a church on the island of Crete. Crete? It has a reputation for being a roughneck, barbarous place. In fact, even today, it persists in our language. If somebody calls you a Cretan, it's not a good thing, all right? They're saying you're uneducated. To be a Cretan is to be uneducated. And so Timothy is trying to start a church in Crete, and there are problems. And so Paul is addressing these problems in this letter. But we only have one side of the letter. So we have to ask ourselves, what might be the problems that Paul is addressing? We have to kind of recreate the issue that Paul is advising on. Now, I do think that this is a personal letter between Paul and Timothy, and Paul had no idea that we would be reading this as Holy Scripture 2,000 years later. I think if he had that idea, maybe he would have been a little bit more careful in his words. Maybe not. It is Paul. And so he writes to Timothy that there are some problems happening in the church, namely that the women are disrupting the service by asking questions. Why would this be a problem? It's because in Crete and in Jewish synagogue culture of that day, women were excluded from the gathering altogether. Women were excluded from the places of learning. All of a sudden, the church sets up and says, hey, everybody is welcome. And so in Crete, we have the women welcome to learn, but they haven't had an education up to this point, and they're disrupting the learning by asking questions. And so Paul's instructions are here, hey, let the women learn, make sure that they're included, make sure that they're there and present, but if they have questions, let them uh, save that for home and ask their husbands who grew up with an education. Look, you don't have to like it, but we need to understand what Paul is saying and that this is contextual for Crete. Nowhere, I mean, Paul is not laying down a law for all churches everywhere. He's laying down his instructions, his advice for Timothy in Crete. Contextual instructions. 
Unfortunately, unfortunately, in a ridiculous move, the church historically has taken this one verse and said this is going to be the backbone for how we organize our churches and we're going to leave women out. It is interesting, I do think, that the verse right before it says women shouldn't wear gold pearls or have elaborate hair designs, and none of those churches have anything to say about that, right? They're picking and choosing what's going to be universal, universally true. Unfortunately, that says more about institutionalized church leadership throughout history than it actually says about the scriptures. Because when we open up the scriptures, when we open up Paul's letters in other places, Paul affirms women and the equality of women. In fact, most scholars doubt that Paul wrote 1 Timothy because it is such an outlier in the way of thinking for the rest of Paul. In any case, we have to judge this one verse in light of the whole of scripture. And I think we can safely and faithfully say those were some instructions for a small group of people that weren't us, for their time and for their place. And maybe it was good instructions, maybe it was good advice for them, but to hold that as normative for the entire church everywhere is to ignore what the Spirit is saying through the entire Bible, which is men, women are created in the image of God just as men are, and God calls women and men faithfully to every position of leadership to preach the good news, to guide the church, and to guide the world. And to refuse women that place of leadership is to step outside of what God is doing in our world. And so, the United Methodist Church has made attempts to make it right. In the early 50s, we started ordaining women. Before we pat ourselves on the back too much, just realize how late in time that's been right? But we continue to open our mind to the wide breadth of Scripture, asking God to give us the scope of what God is doing through Scriptures so that we can handle any of these outlier problem texts in a better, more responsible way so as to no longer harm, but to bless and lift up God's people and honor what God is doing in our world. A couple of questions I have for you as we, uh, as we think about this. The first one is, um, what is your faith or what does the Holy Spirit tell you about the scope of Scripture? I promise you don't have to be a Bible scholar to get it right. I would be willing to bet that through prayer and by asking the Spirit to instruct and guide, that your idea of the overall trajectory of scripture probably isn't that far off. God is faithful to speak and guide to us as we open up the scriptures, so long as we do it with a humble spirit. What, do you, what is your faith, or what is the spirit telling you is the scope of scripture? If you need help, First Colossians says that God in Christ is reconciling all things. I think that's pretty good. So secondly, who are the women leaders in your life that have blessed you, have guided you, have, uh, that you can give thanks for? Let's reflect and, and be thankful for women who have answered the call to lead, especially in the face of such adversity. 
And then finally, how do we as faith church, as the United Methodist Church, as people of God, as people in our community, how do we empower women to be leaders both in the church and outside the church? Throughout Scripture, women are lifted up and affirmed in every place that men are typically occupy. Throughout Scripture, God calls women to faithfully lead, preach, and guide the people. Mary takes her seat among the apostles, and Jesus says she's chosen correctly. It will not be taken from her. Let's take a couple of minutes to think about these things. Thank you for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. If you would like to find out more about Faith United Methodist Church in Issaquah, Washington, visit our website at www.faithunited.org or call the church office at 425-392-0123. Have a great week.